Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the possibility that Putin's disastrous invasion and Xi's mismanagement of the pandemic have opened a narrow window of strategic opportunity for the West. Joining us is Matthew Burrows, a distinguished fellow and program lead for reimagining U.S. grand strategy and the strategic foresight hub at the Henry L. Stimson Center. Having retired from a 28-year career at the CIA and the State Department, he was the principal author of three National Intelligence Council-produced Global Trends reports between 2003 and 2013, and is the co-author of a new study at the Stimson Center, Spheres of Influence in the Coming Decades, Four Alternative Scenarios. Then we'll examine the downfall and jailing of Pakistan's former Prime Minister, the cricket star and playboy Imran Khan, who is now in a tiny, dirty prison cell reading the Quran. Joining us is Shuja Nawaz, a native of Pakistan who was a distinguished fellow at the South Asia Center, which he founded at the Atlantic Council in Washington, D.C. He has advised or briefed senior government and military officials and parliamentarians in the U.S., Europe, and Pakistan, and is the author of The Battle for Pakistan, The Bitter U.S. Friendship and a Tough Neighborhood, and Cross Swords, Pakistan, Its Army, and the Wars Within. Then finally, we'll assess Sunday's loss by the U.S. women's soccer team against Sweden, which right-wing trolls and Donald Trump are celebrating, and speak with Andre Markowitz, a professor of comparative politics and German studies, professor of political science, professor of Germanic languages and literature, as well as a professor of sociology at the University of Michigan. He has also worked extensively on comparative sports cultures in Europe and North America, and his books include Offside, Soccer and American Exceptionalism, Gaming the World, How Sports Are Reshaping Global Politics and Culture, and Women in American Soccer and European Football, Different Roads to Shared Glory. And he just returned from Australia, where the Women's World Cup is underway. And joining us now is Matthew Burrows, who is a Distinguished Fellow and Program Lead for Reimagining U.S. Grand Strategy, and the Strategic Foresight Hub at the Henry L. Stimson Center, having, reco- having retired from a 28-year career at the CIA and the State Department, he was the principal author of three National Intelligence Council-produced global trends reports between 2003 and 2013, and is the co-author of a new study at the Simpson Center, Spheres of Influence in the Coming Decades, Four Alternative Scenarios. Welcome to Background Briefing, Matthew Burroughs. Well, thank you. It's a real pleasure to be here with you. Well, thanks for joining us, Matt. And and let's just touch, before we talk about your, your new study, what did you make of the the peace talks over the weekend in Saudi Arabia? These, this was a 10-point plan put forth by Ukraine, but 40 nations sent high-level representatives, and it does seem like an effort to basically deal with the fact that much of the global south does not necessarily support the U.S. or NATO or Ukraine. And uh, that's always been uh, somewhat puzzling to many. Uh, And also, it seems that uh, that was the whole point, to get these BRICS nations, with the exception of Russia, to change their mind. Do you think um, there was progress made in that that direction? I think the fact that 
you know, the the U.S. supported this, but Saudi Arabia organized it. I think, I think, uh, and the fact we are finally engaging the global south, I think that's a good thing. And obviously, with peace talks, you know, it takes a long time before you you get to the point where you. And I think there has to be a changes on the ground in in Ukraine before you get to the point that you actually get serious and you launch into into really serious peace talks. But, you know, the Global South has felt felt alienated, pushed aside um, by the West. Uh, So um, bringing them in, having them talk, I think that's a I think that's a very good Step and to an extent, it puts a it's put some pressure on Russia. I'm not sure how much, but I noticed in the news that today that the Russians are meeting with their BRIC partners um, and to get a readout, no doubt, to talk about uh, how they, you know, how the BRIC partners are looking on the on the on a potential peace. And how much do you think? America's misadventures, if that's the right word, in Iraq and Afghanistan have have helped, in effect, the Russian position. Because after all, uh, the Soviet Union was a colonial project and the, you know, the Warsaw Pact countries were colonies, in effect, but Russia has been very clever in essentially painting itself as the anti-colonial power and pinning that on the United States. And uh, how much do you think the Iraq war in Afghanistan and other interventions recently have poisoned the well in the global south? Well, I, I think they see the U.S. particularly as hypocritical because we obviously did invade uh, two other countries. I think the, the bigger issue for them, um, I think, is is the fact that the U.S. always is wanting to push on the sanctions and that's very unpopular with i think the global south who believes that you know this is the u.s deciding how the world should react to to anything in this case to the to the russian invasion um and don't want to be under that sort of pressure so i think that is uh, a bigger issue for them and then they're also coming out of the pandemic when the the West really gobbled up all the the RNA vaccines, and it was only the developing world got, uh, you know, got some of that afterwards. And certainly after after the crisis, it ebbed in the in uh, in U.S. and Europe. So I think there, uh, yes, the history is important, but I think too. What they see is 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 the kind of lecturing, posturing, and and then the implementation of sanctions and the pressure on them to uh, impose um, follow the sanctions. I think that was that was equally more important. So your study points out that the Middle East appears poised to exit the U.S. sphere of influence permanently, and this may be a bitter reality to some given the billions of dollars spent and thousands of U.S. lives lost in the region during the global war on terror. Um, That certainly is a bitter pill, is it not? Yes, um, but some of that is not... 
you know that that a lot of that is due to the fact that um, the Middle East um, is basically, and the oil production in the Gulf particularly is catering to Asian customers, um, leading obviously with with China. So that's their important customers, U.S. and Europe. We're still, you know, consuming uh, oil. We produce a fair amount of our own, but they're seeing, you know, the swing in the West towards uh, renewables and looking towards the really South Asia would be another India and others who are who can't actually match the progress that we will probably make on renewables so that they are going to be the customers for the Gulf products. So that's a lot of why the influence is shifting. Um, I do think that, again, you know, going back to your examples on the Iraq and Afghanistan, um, I think they were disenchanted with U.S. leadership because of the Iraq war. Obviously, that increased the threats and the disruptions and the, that they faced in the in the region in the region. Um, and they saw that as something that the U.S. had, had caused. I do think the U.S. is trying to make a comeback, and we'll see how that works. Um, you know, there are reports on uh, a U.S.-Saudi deal on security. So that's a, one area. Security is something that, that China isn't going to provide. Um, so, But I'm not quite sure, you know, the degree to which we and the administration actually can get like Congress and others to agree to um, some sort of really serious security pact with Saudi Arabia. So do you think that the Saudis are uncomfortable with the closer ties that Russia and uh, Russia and Iran are developing with uh, military equipment? Russia is supposed to be selling advanced equipment to uh, Iran, and Iran, I believe, is actually building a factory in Belarus to build drones. Does that bother the Saudis in spite of the Chinese brokered peace deal? And is it likely that the Saudis might uh, use that leverage against the Russians to come aboard a peace plan? Well, I think that that bothers them, yes. But Russia is still a big part of OPEC, so they have to balance off. You know, they they need Russia to abide by uh, what they are hoping are, looks like more production cuts. Russia hasn't always followed, you know, Saudi direction. So they don't, they can't alienate, completely alienate Russia, but they may be sending a shot across Russia's bow by saying that, look, we can play this game on, on peace talks and also with the Americans. So, um, you know, they're great negotiators and, um, Obviously, as you know, on the Russian side, they have been—they have always managed to deal both with Saudis and Iranians. Um, but Saudis must be very concerned about the the increased um, uh, military exchanges going on between Iran and and Russia. So, uh, Matthew Burrows, let's talk about your new study, 
spheres of influence in the coming decades for alternative scenarios at the Stimson Center. And you use the, the baseline of as if the, the Russia invasion of Ukraine hadn't happened. And the first alternative scenario is great power cooperation, which models a continuation of current trends, a protracted war, a protracted war in Ukraine and a gradually rising China. The doldrums considers instead the implications of a stalemate in Ukraine and a long global recession that constrains US and Chinese growth. And then you have Western resurgence and open US trade policies could uh, over the long term shift the balance of geopolitical influence to favor the United States and its partners relative to China. And finally, the pariah state and and the precipice of World War Three, which is a scenario considering the implications of Russian nuclear escalation in Ukraine. First of all, let's start with the last one, Matthew. What would the Russians gain from firing off a nuclear, a tactical nuclear weapon in Ukraine? They're, they're already becoming a pariah state. They'd be a complete pariah state. I don't see any military utility, and I see a massive... Uh, downside for the Russians. I I agree. I mean, I think it would be an act of desperation. You know, there are some Russian commentators, this happened in the last couple of weeks, two commentators who talking about this as a scare tactic against the West, that the West would kind of pull back because they don't want to get involved in the logic in their mind is that the U.S. and West would pull back and they wouldn't want to get involved in uh, in an escalating um, uh, confrontation leading to, to to you know massive use of of nuclear weapons. I don't I don't think that would be the way it would play out. I think there would be a a massive conventional attack against the, the Russians against if Putin decided to use it. And I don't think he would. First, he would use it even if he was losing uh, Crimea. But I do think that there's enough of a possibility that we have to, you know, plan for it or consider uh, what would happen, what would how it would happen and what would be the implications of it. I think that you know the broader issue. I, my own mind. I mean, if when you're looking at the four scenarios, I think the first one about a frozen conflict is the one that's that the that at this point looks the likeliest. That doesn't mean that the others won't <laughs> won't overtake it at some point. But at this point, I think the frozen conflict is probably the likeliest. But it seems that Putin's best play is Donald Trump, right? If Donald Trump comes back, then it won't be a frozen conflict. Trump will pull out of uh, Ukraine immediately and probably pull out of NATO. That's what, that's what certainly what Putin hopes for. I mean, I'm not, I'm not sure that Trump can, can completely do that. He doesn't have the whole Republican Party behind him on that 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 move um you know he was in a sense he tried to pull out of um nato when he was president during his first term and that that really you know first it's not clear how you get out of a treaty but secondly 
um, he had a lot of, of pushback within his own administration, if not within the, the Republican Party. But, you know, the point would be that, that um, because he could signal that the U.S. isn't going to continue backing Ukraine year after year, that it would move maybe the Ukrainians, you know, to to think about trying to get a peace deal earlier and on more compromised terms. But secondly, um, you know, he does have a good rapport with with Putin, try to get Putin to consider peace before, uh, even if he's, you know, has the upper hand of still holding on to 20%, roughly 20% of Ukraine. So let's talk about the doldrums, the idea that there would be a stalemate in Ukraine and a long global recession that constrains the US and Chinese growth. How likely is that? I think I I would not put it, in my mind, it would be level with, uh, with uh, almost level with a... Um, with the first uh, scenario of um, of a frozen conflict, I think economically, the more we, you know, whatever whatever we want to call this decoupling or de-risking, we're heading into a more protectionist world. And secondly, you know, you have an issue with the I think with the U.S. with its with its mounting debts and de deficits. Possible government long, shutdown. How long that will, you know, be able to? How long that will be viable? I have no idea. You know, I can't name you a specific year, but I think there is a, a time bomb mm. there. Sure. Um, and obviously, China is is stuck too, um, in terms of of being able to recapture um, the growth path it was on before. So yes, there's a lot of reasons for adult the doldrums. And alternatively, a Western resurgence, what do you think the chances of that are? I think that's that... less less likely because uh, unlike the doldrums in a resurgence, as you just said earlier, I mean, we would have to open our markets. And we really, since 2016, when we, you know, Trump and Hillary Clinton decided, you know, U.S. would not go ahead with the Trans-Pacific Partnership, TPP, got out of it. I mean, the U.S. has, has basically pulled back. And I think um, I don't see that reversal. Um, and as I said before, I think we're moving actually into a more protectionist world. Um, so going from, you know, the heydays of, of globalization was in the 1990s and we are sliding down the other side and I don't see how we get up to where we were very easily. So then just in closing then, Matthew Burroughs, in terms of geopolitical realignments, how much do you think the quad is going to become significant? It seems to be just a an alliance on paper. I don't know that there's any evidence of a, of a practical military alliance, but there's a general sense that 
that India is on the rise, China is somewhat stalled. I don't know where you'd put the United States in that category. But where do, where do you see future alignments, both, both for and against the U.S.? Well, I, uh, I think India certainly has major concerns about China. I'm not sure that, in fact, I don't think there would go all in if you got if the U.S. got into a major conflict with China. So not, you know, I don't see the Quad as a as a NATO-like uh, organization, and I think most of the Asians, you know, in or out of the Quad, worry really about. What would happen economically if you get into a fraught and the U.S. gets into an increasingly fraught uh, relationship with, with, with China and possibly a, a, a hot conflict? So, you know, that, those relationships are a little bit different than the ones the U.S. has with, with, with Europe, where there's more ironclad guarantees. And I think, as we talked about the earlier one with a tactical nuclear use by Russia, I think there would be, you know, unanimous agreement on a, on a very strong military reaction. I'm not sure that the Asians, outside of perhaps Japan, uh, are prepared for for a major U.S.-China conflict. Well, I hope uh, it, <laughs> I don't know that anybody's prepared for that. It's a it's a horrendous scenario, is it not? Um, with two nuclear powers um, going to the brink. Well, I think we, you know, <laughs> I've written a whole book on that. I mean, I think that's something that we need to. We should be taking seriously the risk of of that happening. Myself, I think it's a bit like the, you know, pre um, the period before the First World War, and we're not we're not understanding the risks of sliding into into such a conflict. Well, Matthew Burrows, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Matthew Burroughs, who's a distinguished fellow and program lead for Reimagining U.S. Grand Strategy and the Strategic Foresight Hub at the Henry L. Stimson Center. Having retired from a 28-year career at the CIA and the State Department, he was the principal author of three National Intelligence Council-produced Global Trends reports between 2003 and 2013, and is one of the authors of Spheres of Influence in the Coming Decades for Alternative Scenarios at the Stimson Centre. We're going to take a brief station break at back examining the downfall and jailing of Pakistan's former Prime Minister, the cricket star and playboy Imran Khan, who is now in a tiny, dirty prison cell reading the Quran. Put me in jail if I fail to give you all the love that's yours, put me in jail if I fail in loving you. I stood before the jury, it was an ugly scene. Welcome.
Welcome back, I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now, Shuja Nawaz, a native of Pakistan who is a distinguished fellow at the South Asia Center at the Atlantic Council in Washington, D.C. that he founded. He's also advised or briefed senior government and military officials and parliamentarians in the United States, Europe and Pakistan, and is the author of The Battle for Pakistan, The Bitter U.S. Friendship and a Tough Neighborhood, and Cross Swords, Pakistan, Its Army and the Wars Within. Welcome to Background Briefing, Suja Nawaz. Thank you, Ian. Always good to be with you. Well, thanks for joining us, Suja. And what, what do you make of the imprisonment of former Pakistan's former Prime Minister Imran Khan in a pretty brutal kind of prison, the Atok Jail. Apparently he's, at, he's, he's in a cramped cell in an overcrowded prison. It looks as if they're really trying to humiliate him. Well, I think this has been a long time coming. Um, the, the aim was to try and remove him from the political equation, particularly as the current... Uh, government's tenure is about to end um, and um, fresh elections are due to be held uh, this fall um, if uh, agreement can be reached on on the delimitation of constituencies. Um, there's still some questions pending on that, but uh, this government is likely uh, to step aside uh, within the week and then um, a caretaker prime minister and a caretaker government will be appointed to uh, plan uh, for the next elections, as well as to try and stabilize the economic situation that has been completely out of control in the last few years. So is he has, uh, Imran Khan has, pre- has previously called for his supporters to uh, take to the streets and they have done so in in great numbers previously, but the latest call only a few hundred showed up. So, is he losing his his power over the street? Well, I think he's gradually lost it in the sense that uh, the coalition that he had managed to put together, with assistance from the military, it was uh, reported uh, in the last election when he was elected as prime minister. Uh, that coalition has crumbled. And um, after um, background consultations, presumably with the military, uh, many of the members of that coalition uh, have said that they have left his party or they have left politics. Um, So this is uh, clearly political muscle being exercised uh, by the military uh, that has helped convince many of them to quit the field and uh, left his party decimated. Whenever uh, one of the former ministers or advisors or members of his government has made one of these public statements uh, dissociating themselves from his party, um, Imran Khan has proceeded to publicly fire them. Now, for the first time in his life, he is facing um, as according to him, something like 180 criminal cases uh, of one kind or the other. So he has really been checkmated in the courts. Um, and he made a tragic error, uh, in my view, uh, in quitting the assemblies and also in 
asking his party that was running the provincial assemblies in the uh, very critical provinces of the Punjab, which is the uh, economically and politically most powerful province in the country, as well as Khyber Pakhtunkhwa, uh, where he'd been running the government uh, with the coalition. Uh, he, he got his party members to resign their seats, which left the field clear for the opposition coalition that succeeded him. And so he lost the initiative, and now he's paying the price. Uh, a bigger price that he's paying uh, for is the manner, uh, the summary manner in which he dismissed the Director General into Services Intelligence, uh, then Lieutenant General Asim Munir, who now happens to be the Chief of Army Staff and perhaps the most powerful man in Pakistan today. And so there may well be an element of vendetta and retribution in what we're seeing in Pakistan today. Uh, no wonder so that his party uh, has been unable to muster the public support that he thought he might once he was arrested. So, so Shuja, he was then helped into power by the military and now they've turned against him. And he sort of publicly turned against them, I, I think, didn't he not? So what happened between in his relationship with the military, which, of course, is a very powerful institution in Pakistan? Well, I think a number of things happened. One, of course, was his uh, whimsical style of governance uh, ran afoul of the military. He uh, would sometimes take actions that the military didn't agree with or thought that they reached agreement with him. Uh, on and then he would do his own thing. Um, so the previous army chief and he had a falling out after ha having been extremely close uh, for a number of years. Uh, and then, of course, uh, when the previous army chief uh, retired and was succeeded by the man whom Imran Khan had fired, it was quite clear that there was not going to be any love lost between the two of them. Then he also... Uh, shifted gears at one point and from blaming the United States for engineering his political downfall through uh, engineering a, a vote of no confidence in the Pakistani parliament, he said, no, no, actually the real people behind the vote of no confidence uh, was not uh, the American government. The real person behind it was the former army chief, um, General Bajwa. And so that has essentially put him at odds with the military. Well, how's it playing in Pakistan? Is it, he, he blamed the U.S., and I think there's a certain amount of anti-Americanism there. Did that have traction? Anti-Americanism, unfortunately, has always had traction in Pakistan because uh, governments in, have, have had no trouble in speaking from both sides of their mouth. They, they are happy to, to uh, play ball with the United States so long as they receive something in return, and that often takes the form of, of military or civil assistance. Um, and they're willing to, to, to lie to their own people about uh, what is happening uh, on their borders or within their own country. Um, and so this goes back for decades now um, uh, on the Afghanistan uh, imbroglio, 
Um, it happened um, that when drone attacks took place, the government and the military would decry the drone attacks, but they were also assisting the U.S. in, in targeting uh, some of the, the people that were being hit by the drones in the border region. Uh, meanwhile, they were telling their people that uh, they were totally opposed to this invasion of an infringement, infringement of sovereignty of Pakistan. So um, anti-Americanism has been uh, fostered by the governments in Pakistan over the years and uh, has been used by them as a political tool. Unfortunately, the United States has had a transactional relationship with Pakistan. They have not made a serious effort, in my view, at building a relationship with the people of Pakistan, although they have a great basis for doing that on the basis of their help with the education sector, with Fulbright scholarships, uh, with the agriculture sector, with building an agricultural research capacity in Pakistan, uh, laying the grounds for the first green revolution and perhaps the second one. So, obviously, the, the war next door in Afghanistan created a lot of bitterness, did it not, between the United States and Pakistan, particularly the U.S. military, who felt that that Pakistan's support of the Taliban was essentially stabbing them in the back. Indeed, uh, and the ambivalence of the Pakistani government after the U.S. left Afghanistan towards the Taliban government in Afghanistan uh, has remained uh, a sore spot. Although the Pakistanis are clearly now, uh, particularly in the military, trying to reestablish a relationship with the U.S. military to reopen training opportunities, uh, to reopen the weapons and, and ammunition pipeline. And there are also reports uh, through open source intelligence that Pakistan may be providing assistance to Ukraine um, through the, the British and uh, on behalf of the, of the US-led coalition in Ukraine. Um, so all of this indicates some kind of a temporary understanding between the military elites uh, in the United States and Pakistan. But is it all but does it also not, does it also Suja, mean that there's some form of bias remorse um, in the Pakistan establishment, particularly in the military, the ISI and the military, which of course is powerful uh, in the sense that uh, they supported the Taliban and now they've got a radical regime on their border that, in other words, they've sort of created the monster that they no longer control. Absolutely. Uh, and I think this is uh, the ambivalence within the Pakistani intelligence community also, where the lower ranks at the operational level perhaps still retain links to some of the, the Taliban that used Pakistani territory as a sanctuary in the war against uh, the Afghan government of the time, as well as uh, the coalition partnership that was supporting uh, the Afghan government uh, before the Americans and the coalition departed Afghanistan. The, the buyer's remorse also extends towards uh, Imran Khan, whom, as I said, the military was reported to have assisted in key constituencies, particularly in the Punjab, where uh, people were uh, reportedly given the choice of either not running for office 
or running on his party ticket um, or running as independents so that uh, they would not support the, the, the Pakistan Muslim League, um, Nawaz group or any other group. Um, and, and, and when that happened, uh, the so-called electables uh, all uh, flooded towards Imran Khan. He formed his own coalition and, um, and then uh, achieved a majority, uh, a massive majority, um, which he unfortunately couldn't control. So in terms of the Taliban, does anybody have influence over them? I mean, it seems that it's their sort of two Taliban leaderships. You've got the religious leaders in Kandahar who are sort of back in the Stone Age, and then you've got more pragmatic leaders in Kabul, but the, the Kandahar seems to still run the show. Does that your, is that your understanding, Suja? I wouldn't use the word pragmatic. I would say that uh, there, there is a difference and that the leaders uh, of the government, particularly on the security side, uh, are people that are more aligned with the Haqqani group. Uh, and um, they um, may have still some backward linkages in Pakistan where members of their families may still be present. But um, uh, there is uh, obviously a difference of opinion between the uh, the supreme leader uh, and some members of his own government. The Pakistani military is blowing hot and cold on this issue. Uh, there are more recent statements indicate that they will perhaps want to use military force against Afghanistan. Uh, I think that would be a mistake because it would involve Pakistan in opening uh, a second front while it has yet to resolve the situation on the eastern border with India. And it would be a very expensive uh, enterprise because it's a long border. And if uh, 150,000 plus coalition forces um, supported by the economies and the, the armament of Europe and, and North America couldn't do the job, then Pakistan, uh, with its limited resources, is going to have a problem on its hands. And where today is the Pakistan Taliban? The Pakistani Taliban are using Afghan territory as sanctuary uh, to launch attacks inside Pakistan. Um, and let's not forget the Islamic State, Khorasan province, as they're called. Uh, that is trying to upend the Afghan Taliban government and launching attacks inside Pakistan also, as was the case um, against the party meeting of Mulana Fazlur Rahman's jamiat e ulama islam a member of the current government's uh, coalition. That um, had a meeting and uh, more than 50 people were killed by a suicide bomber and the ISKP took took the blame for it or the responsibility for it. So that And that was that was the recent bombing, right? That was that was a recent bombing, was it not? At a mosque, I think it was. Within the last week, yes. Yes. Then this is a fairly complex tableau of terrorist groups and you've got the you've got a, a fairly substantial Pashtun population in Pakistan itself. Where are their sympathies now? It doesn't seem 
it's hard to get any real reporting outside of out of Afghanistan, but the general impression you get is that it's a pretty miserable situation, and the the people cannot be happy with this reactionary sort of medieval government that's turning the clock back on just about everything. Absolutely, um, the the Afghan people are uh, the population is the youngest in South Asia, and most of them had. Uh, been introduced to the idea that they could develop uh, through education and by allowing women to participate in the labor market, build their country into a strong modern economy. That has been uh, completely stopped. In Pakistan, which actually has more Pakhtun than uh, in Afghanistan itself, the Pakhtun population has by and large supported Imran Khan. The women in Pakistan uh, seem to have been very attracted by his promises, uh, even though uh, his, his governance and his, his failure to deliver on those promise, promises may, may have confounded some of them. Uh, but there is still a fair amount of support for him in the cities of, of Pakistan. Uh, and if you recall that the population of Pakistan also is young, with the median age being uh, 22.8 years. And so um, his his statements and his policy statements seem to have attracted the youth and the women. So that support remains, even though the political system may well have been dissuaded from coming out in his favor. Um, and this is what is worrying the government and the military, that they're worried that because they've been recruiting from the urban centers, from the youth of Pakistan, that many of them uh, may well be uh, supporters of Imran Khan's ideas. Um, they, they may not support his style of governance or the quality of his governance, but they like his ideas and the fact that he's not a dynastic politician. So all of this is adding to the mix. And I, I should say that underlying it all is a critical issue which is that the economy of Pakistan has tumbled. Uh, it has imploded. Uh, growth rate, which used to be at 6 or 7% annually in order to stay abreast of the population increase, has um, been below 3% now for the last year or two, uh, and not likely to rise much in the next few years. So Pakistan is going to have to dig itself out of an economic hole and the economic uh, difficulties are likely to give rise to further political unrest, come what may, uh, regardless of whether elections take place in October or November or are postponed indefinitely. Um, the e economy needs to survive uh, and, and get back on the growth track. Otherwise, Pakistan is going to face severe social and political turmoil. Shujin Nawaz, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Shujin Nawaz, who's a native of Pakistan and a distinguished fellow at the South Asia Center, which he founded at the Atlantic Council in Washington, D.C. He also has advised or briefed senior government and military officials and parliamentarians in the United States, Europe, and Pakistan, and is the author of The Battle for Pakistan, The Bitter U.S. Friendship and a Tough Neighborhood, and Cross Swords, Pakistan, Its Army, and the Wars Within. 
We're going to take a brief station break and back with an assessment of Sunday's loss by the U.S. women's soccer team against Sweden, which right-wing trolls and Donald Trump are celebrating. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Andre Markovitz, who's a professor of comparative politics and German studies, professor of political science, professor of Germanic languages and literature, as well as a professor of sociology at the University of Michigan. He has worked extensively on comparative sports culture in Europe and North America, and his books include Offside, Soccer and American Exceptionalism, Gaming the World, How Sports Are Reshaping Global Politics and Culture, and Women in American Soccer and European Football, Different Roads to Shared Glory. Welcome to Background Briefing, Andre Markovitz. Thank you so much for having me again. Well, thanks for joining us. And you're just back from Australia where the yes. Women's World Cup is being held. And in terms of shared glory, I'm afraid the contrast between the jubilant Swedish team and the demoralized American team on Sunday after their loss in penalties was pretty evident. And, of course, the United States has won four of the previous eight uh, World Cup tournaments and always been in the semifinals and didn't even make it into the quarterfinals, uh, which is pretty shocking, is it not? Uh, yes, kind of shocking. Um, but, uh, you know, already uh, last World Cup in 2019, it was very evident that uh, the world, and in this case, above all, uh, the European powerhouses of uh, Germany, of, 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 of Spain, England, and so on, closed the gap. And it was actually the U.S. that won the tournament, but still the U.S. alone in the quarterfinals with the seven European countries. So already the writing is on the wall. Um, but in addition to that, the U.S. played poorly, very poorly. And that has nothing to do with closing the gap. And, you know, that happens. I mean, it's a changing of the guards, uh, whatever. Um, uh, our first three matches were really abysmal. Um, and we were lucky to have made it into the uh, into the knockout round. I mean, you know, talk about inches or millimeters. You know that that major shot by that Portuguese woman uh, in the ninety first minute. Um, you know, if it goes in, we're gone. And so we, you, you and I would not be having this conversation now. Um, so um, and the Portuguese were much better than we were, much. Um, so I'm not, and, and we played by far the best game against the Swedes. We should have won that game. Had it not been for their keeper, uh, we would have won the game. Uh, so the U.S. is still, uh, you know, the U.S. is still a mighty, mighty force, and the brilliant young talents that are coming along, and a couple of players who didn't make it make the team this time because of injury. So all kinds of stories, and it's okay. You can't win them all. I mean, uh, other than, uh, so far, other than the, at the Rio Olympics, the United States has medaled or won every World Cup or Olympic, Olympic uh, game since 1996. 
I mean, it's incredible the run that we've had. And unlike in the men's game, in the women's game, the Olympics matter big time, as, as much as the World Cup almost. And um, for the general public, actually, arguably even more rather than the soccer public, because people know the Olympics better. So we have another chance next year in Paris. And, um, you know, again, unlike in the men's where the, the Olympics mean nothing and the women's, it means a lot. So we have a, a year, you know, a year just going by and there's all kinds of, you know, the U.S. can rebound from this. It's not a big deal. But the U.S., I thought, played pretty well in this game against yeah. Sweden. They had 21 shots on goal, 11 were on target. But for this extraordinary goalkeeping uh, yeah. by the Swedish goalkeeper, they would have won. So, oh, uh, as I said. And, and in the penalties, they only lost by millimetres because... The... Yeah, the penalties are problematic. I mean, you can't miss the way our three three players missed. I mean, you can't, it really just looks bad. And, um, uh, you know, the, the one that went way, way astray and then even Megan Rapinoe, you know, really misses it. And she should have, she's a much better player, a much better shooter, much more secure. And she clearly, you know, wouldn't, shouldn't have had the nerve, you know, any nerve issue because, you know, she's a seasoned, seasoned veteran. Anyway, it happened. I mean, it's just, it's, 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 it's sports. Um, you know, it's okay. Well, but what's happened uh, as a result of this loss? Uh, the right wing have seized on it here in the United States, and none other than a former president of the United States tweeted out on Truth Social, the shocking and totally unexpected loss by the U.S. women's soccer team to Sweden is fully emblematic of what is happening to our once great nation under crooked Joe Biden. Many of our players were openly hostile to America. No other country behaved in such a manner or even close. Woke equals failure. Nice shot, Megan. The U.S. is going to hell. MAGA. So that's about as nasty and petty and disgusting as it gets, particularly attacking Megan Rapinoe personally. I don't know what to say. I mean, it's just, it's disgusting. It's disgusting. It's, 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 it's abominable. But I'm, I don't expect anything um, other than this from from this loathsome human being. So, uh, you know, onward. I mean, I don't know what to say. It's not even worth discussing. Right. Well, there's a history, though, you know. Yeah, yeah, of uh, course I know the history is there. Of course, of course, of course. Well, I mean, back in 2009 when uh, Rabineau uh, was the co-captain of the team, she said she wouldn't visit the White House. Um, 2019, not nine. 2019. 2019 so, yeah, so, yeah, I meant 2019. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I understand. Yeah, it, 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 let's not get into this. I mean, it's it's whether that was the right thing to do is I again have some problems with that. But 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 Trump is is not, not it's you know it's not uh, worth. I mean, it's beyond the pale on all levels, and it's just outrageous. And of course, it's not just Trump; it's all across the the right yeah, wing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure, sure. Mm. Uh, you know, it's they're, th again, they're celebrating America's loss. Uh, yeah, I've, it's disgusting. It's, yeah. Uh, they they of of big B of, of major patriotism allegedly. Right. They are are who are the the, the big patriots and and who are uh, you know uh, make America great again and all about America and and denouncing the left for being. It's 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 terrible. It's ridiculous. It's uh, again. I don't think we have to discuss this very much. Well, let's discuss uh, your article at the University of Michigan, 2023 FIFA Women's World Cup. 
where will the women's professional game go from here? So walk us into the future. Or well, I mean, dribble us into the future. <laughs> yeah, what, what we basically are seeing, and I think that's, um, I expected this and already last time, it's sort of a, almost a clash of two different concepts of, of, uh, of, the, of the game and its structure. On the one side is the American, which is uh, based on college, and which is tremendously successful. Let's not forget that almost 20% of all the players in Australia are college graduates, are college of products of the American college system. Incredible. Um, there are virtually no teams that doesn't have a number of them. The Canadians had the most, I mean, literally the entire team is American colleges. Um, but the English all have them. And so this is sort of the early development of the women's game where the Americans are and the United States is, is clearly the trailblazer and, the, and, 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 and really created the this, this sport. So kudos, kudos, kudos. Um, for a while, the Europeans just completely derided this as yet another American abomination. Don't even, I mean, I won't even go into what, uh, what kind of language I heard in England every time I, you know, mentioned women's, the women's game. It was a completely, you know, derogatory, uh, deriding, uh, a form of somehow Americans are sullying this holy thing uh, called football. And uh, maybe a little better in Germany, but not really, and, and, and elsewhere in Europe. And this actually changes, changes around the aughts and, and above all around the, 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 the 2010, 12, so on, so on, so onward. And now what has happened is that the European academy and club system has taken over and is really going gung-ho. And as of the last three or four years, such mega entities as Real Madrid, Barcelona, Manchester United, Manchester City, the, all, the entire EPL teams, uh, Bayern Munich, are all now taking are, are all have women's teams and are financing them seriously and having them play on, on the men's pitch and it be, or, or at, in the training the same facilities and, and really upgrading. And this is... The result of this, you see this, the, with the Spaniards, who are, you were nowhere even eight years ago or six years ago, and they are formidable now. And so what happens is that there is this, the European Academy system uh, kind of challenging the American collegiate system. And um, uh, that's what I'm kind of in the article talk about our Real Madrid, where the University of North Carolina Chapel did with 22 national titles. Incredible. Uh, people always associate the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill only as a basketball school, but it is in fact a huge soccer school and above a women's soccer school, and created amazing players: uh, Heather O'Reilly, uh, um, uh, and of course Mia Hamm, and many many others, major English stars like uh, um, I forget her first name, Alfred Kelly. Um, I think it was Jean Kelly, but um, um, uh, so so. That, that was the, our Real Madrid. And now the real, real Real Madrid is taking over on the women's game as well. And in the last women's um, uh, European U UEFA Champions League final between Wolfsburg and Barcelona, uh, there you know, there's, uh, and, and, and there are, are you know, 60,000, 70,000 people uh, that go to this. And formerly, uh, women's, not so long ago, uh, 
in Germany, I remember going to women's soccer games on weekends and, and Bundesliga soccer, and there were fewer than 1,000 people. So it's now gotten into overdrive, and this, um, this, car, this um, uh, competition in Australia is in- incredible. I mean, it's breaking every record imaginable in terms of tickets sold, watching, and so on and so forth. And in fact, um, really uh, putting an entire continent, an entire country into a frenzy with the Matildas. And, um, you know, if they win, I mean, uh, incredible. Uh, to give you just one example, um, on the, the game between Australia and Canada, um, that night, um, uh, the, uh, the, the, the viewers, uh, viewership in Australia was three times larger than for the Ashes, uh, where the Australian team was playing England, I think in Edgbaston or, or one of the major c- cricket grounds in England. Um, and, so, and, and, and anyone who knows anything about Australian history and Australian culture knows how important the Ashes are and how important the series against England in cricket is. And the, the women's soccer game just blew them out of the water. So this is an amazing development, um, which really bears uh, our attention. And this is where I want the focus to be, not what uh, 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 a crude idiot like Donald Trump is uh, uh, you know, uh, putting forth. Well, Andre Markovic, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you for having me, Ian. Bye-bye. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now.